What's up guys? Happy Monday. I hope you're doing well on this fantastic blue sky Monday. Today, during quarantine of COVID-19, I have Dr. Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin, on the podcast to talk about his new book, Coping with Coronavirus. And we touch on a lot of different topics today, right into Buddhism, fitness, mental health, the long term, uh, I found this really informative and really cool chat with Brendan. He's a super knowledgeable guy, and I hope you enjoy, guys. Without further ado, let's have Dr. Brendan Kelly. Okay, Brendan, thanks a million for coming on today. But thanks for having me. So I think maybe it would be cool to start out with a little bit of a history about yourself, Brendan, your education background and maybe where you're at today. Yeah, well, my name is Brendan Kelly. I'm from Galway and I, uh, I grew up in Galway, studied medicine in NUI Galway. And uh, now I work as a consultant psychiatrist in Tala Hospital. And that means I'm a medical doctor who specializes in the treatment of mental illness and various kinds of psychological distress. And I'm also a professor of psychiatry in Trinity College Dublin, which means I teach medical students and uh, do research. And uh, what brings us here today, I guess, I write books from time to time. Okay, excellent. Busy man, definitely a busy man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's busy, but it's very interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting work. Uh, kind of uh, thinking about and writing about and indeed treating people with, um, you know, all kinds of things ranging from, you know, psychological problems uh, at one end of the spectrum, but right across then to severe mental illness as well, um, requiring inpatient care and involuntary care and so forth. So across the whole spectrum of psychological distress and um, and it's, it's a really good time for doing it as well. We have a lot of awareness of mental illness and so on. So it's it's an interesting time and an interesting job. Right. And was there a point in your career, perhaps you might have started out in medicine, was there a point in your career where the whole mental health side of it became much more something that you'd like to gravitate towards to? And uh, if so, what kind of happened to spur that off? Well, this was in actually in secondary school in Galway in the Bish or St. Joseph's College. Um, I decided I wanted to be either an economist or a psychiatrist. Um, and, and I was very focused on these two options, much to the despair of my guidance teacher who couldn't understand why I didn't have two alternatives that were more similar, you know, why they're so different. But um, and, and it's funny then over the past few years watching how, um, you know, economists have become like, you know, experts and they... Um, they're looking a lot more at behavioral economy. In other words, um, the fact that people aren't very rational actors and we don't always buy rationally. We don't we don't spend our money rationally. And so e economics is merging into psychology a great lot as well. But anyway, in the end, I decided on medicine and Julie, as soon as uh, was possible in medicine, I specialized in psychiatry, which I'm very happy I did. Excellent, excellent. I noticed uh, I was reading your bio. You've all do PhD in law as well. 
Yeah, now along the way, um, I'm interested in lots of things. So I did master's degrees in uh, epidemiology, uh, which is the distribution of diseases, really relevant at the moment. Um, management, we're all supposed to do that. And uh, Buddhist studies, we're not all supposed to do that. <laughs> and uh, then, as you say, I went on, I did a PhD in law. I did a PhD in history and uh, similar doctorates in medicine, uh, kind of like a research degree and a doctorate in governance as well, looking at uh, public sector governance and law. So a whole whole bunch of things along the, the path. The path has been very higgledy piggledy, but it, it's got me to it's got me here to this podcast, I guess. Absolutely. I would love to know where you got the time to do all that education. That is a serious amount of study. Yeah. Well, I, the, the fact is, I just like it. It's it's what I do and I enjoy it. And uh, so it's the exact same as if someone likes, say, um, watching rugby, which I don't. Um, and they just sit down and on an afternoon and watch rugby or go along to a game. It's the exact same for me in reading or writing or doing some of this stuff. It's just what I do. No particular merit attaches to it. it it's just... I mean, it's just what I do when I like it. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And uh, for, forever developing, you'll probably have a lot more in front of you as well. Yeah, a lot a lot of things uh, going on. Um, I've been writing books in recent years about the history of psychiatry and the history of how we've treated people who are labelled as mentally ill and uh, also about the law. I'm very interested in how we use the law uh, to treat uh, people with severe mental illness and also to protect their rights. Um, so, yeah, a lot of uh, writing, researching and papers and talking and all kinds of things. I never seem to shut up. <laughs> so having a look through the bio, um, I saw, yeah, it was it took a little bit of a left and a right turn and different kind of uh, skills, different feathers to your hat. But uh, the one that jumped out for me was Buddhism. It just looked like a little bit of an odd one in there. And uh, I'd, I'd love to dig into that a little bit and just kind of what, how you ended up doing that or what your interest was. Yeah, you know, that's the one that jumps out at everybody, uh, intriguingly. This is, it started way back when I was uh, 16 or 17, and I ended up going on a trip to Japan, um, organized by the Japanese embassy. And um, we visited a lot of Buddhist uh, shrines and um, sort of monasteries and temples and things as part of that trip around Japan, which was fantastic. And that started my interest in in reading about Buddhism. And um, after I qualified in medicine, then I did uh, a master's. It was partly through distance learning and, and, and so, so on through the University of Sunderland. And uh, Buddhism is a really interesting uh, tradition because it doesn't require um, belief in a god. It requires um, that you would take sort of a, a set of teachings and apply them in your own life and see, do they help? And if they do, great and if they don't that's fine you know it, it it doesn't really matter it's very different in terms of what it demands of the person it just demands enough belief that you would try things like maybe meditating or um thinking about life in certain ways and if this helps you good and if it doesn't you know that's that's no problem either of course in my current work now as a psychiatrist we've seen in recent years mindfulness which is a part of Buddhism um, being applied all over the place uh, to everything, as far as I can see. Um, and, and it's interesting to see one bit of a very complicated tradition, a very rich Buddhist tradition, to see one bit kind of yanked out of its context and then applied like a Band-Aid um, as if it is the solution to everything, which it isn't. It's very, very helpful, but it's um, 
it's kind of just been taken from its context and presented as the answer to, I think, all of life's problems, as far as I can see. Right. I mean, yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I, I kind of use a little bit of in the in the gym and after a lot of the classes we're doing at the moment on Zoom and stuff will include a little bit of mindfulness, but I would definitely be fascinated to go down the rabbit hole of what else there is because obviously I've, I've very little experience with Buddhism, you know? Yeah, but you see, what you're describing there, Eamon, is using some of the mindfulness skills as an embedded part of something that you're doing, which is which is great. Buddhism is, in, and these things are incredibly adaptable and usable in a certain context. So, you know, you see a lot of really good mindfulness teaching going on and mindfulness meditation. And it's, it's. I mean, so much of it is good. And what you're describing is it's, it's integrated into something bigger, but it doesn't, doesn't really stand on its own as a, as a solution. And certainly in, in, in Buddhism, practicing mindfulness is one element of meditation. Another one would be, um, you know, trying to attain insight and wisdom um, and trying to move beyond the mindfulness and beyond the wisdom into whatever kind of domain lies out there. Um, but there's, you know, mindfulness is, is really good when it's integrated into some kind of a program, a psychological program or a physical health program, because we still have this really peculiar idea that mental health is entire, is, is separate to physical health in some way. Um, which, as I'm sure you know from your own work, it just isn't true. Our heads are, you know, firmly stuck onto our bodies. You know, there's no denying it. And, um, and, and the two are much closer. So I really like when I hear, say, mindfulness being integrated into programs of physical and mental wellness. That's, that's, that, that, that is, in fact, what it's for. Uh, was Buddhism the inspiration for the book, The Doctor Who Sat for a Year? Yes. So like a lot of people, um, uh, I believe meditation can be helpful. And um, like a lot of people, my brain looks for lots of ways to avoid meditating. And uh, sometimes I think that doing a master's in Buddhist studies was basically a way of me avoiding actually focusing on meditation. Um, so um, I eventually got back around to it and I um, decided I'd meditate every day for a year without fail. And this is kind of a challenging thing to do because I've, you know, I've a full-time job, um, busy with family and all kinds of stuff. So I wrote a book called The Doctor Who Sat for a Year. That's me. I didn't actually sit for a year. I sat and meditated every day for starting with 10 minutes a day, every day for a full year. And I kept a sort of a sort of a diary about it. Um, and I was just interested to see, was it possible? To, to, to commit to doing something like that every day because you know other other things eat into the time but um and so that so that book came out from gill uh in 2017 and is available on amazon and from gill and it's about uh it's really a daily diary for a year about meditating with some instructions about how to meditate at the end some essays scattered through it and a reflection about uh, the year at the very end wow that's a, it's a big undertaking. I know for myself trying to trying to meditate and trying to get it into the routine, it can be so hard. Yeah, it can. And, uh, you know, things come along, weekends, holidays, random life things, busyness. Um, but it is it is possible to do and it's helpful. To, helpful. I think the um, the benefits can be quite subtle, but they're still very strong. And um, I suppose it's uh, the benefits are really focused on making you more centered, less uh, reactionary, less reactive. Um, 
So uh, yeah. you don't, you know, we, we don't get disproportionately irritated by very small things, which happens all the time. So, yeah. So it was Buddhism that led me to that year of daily meditation. Did you have a minimum amount of time per day that you had to yeah. meditate? I, I just started at 10 minutes a day and I increased it up to 20 and 30 minutes as I went on. But uh, the rule was that if I took a step, if I increased the, the time, I was never I wasn't allowed to take a step back at any point. So I increased the time slowly. And meditation is a slow thing. Like it's not something you can do in a hurry. So um, I increased the time quite slowly and just tried to ensure I didn't miss a single day, um, which I didn't. Um, and it, it's all about steadiness and commitment over time. Like I see a lot of people, I meet people who decide to meditate and they fly off, well, when we could, they fly off to India for, you know, for 10 days, meditating 18 hours a day and they, they get sick and they nearly die. And then they come back and they say it was the most amazing thing ever. And then they never meditate for another day in their entire life. So I was kind of like going for the opposite of that. I was living my life um, doing my job. <laughs> Like I was never going to renounce my life, go and live up the mountains in Leitrim in a mud hut or something. That was just never going to happen. So it was about integrating a small amount of meditation into a fairly normal, busy, modern life. That's what the book uh, was about. Right. You've pretty much just described the process of fitness too and, and exactly what I tried to get out of my clients. And it's not that kind of all in, let's do everything all at once. It's that more slow and steady and let's let's build this as part of our life for the long term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking for sustainability uh, if you want to produce any kind of proper change. Uh, drama is rarely advised and it, it's, it's never sustainable. So I think the approach has to be a very incremental, slow and steady approach to, to changing, you know, usually changing lots of aspects of your life a little bit. And that produces a big difference. Absolutely. So currently, Brendan, what does your day look like? Uh, I know you, we chatted a little bit the other day about PPE and stuff. You're, you're frontlining at the moment, yeah? Yeah. So I'm a psychiatrist and I work in uh, Tala Hospital. And um, so like we're still seeing patients, inpatients and outpatients. Um, obviously, there are uh, lots of special precautions when we're seeing people in hospitals now. Um, some some people are, you know, suspected uh, of having COVID-19, some, some confirmed cases and some people with negative tests. So there's a lot more by way of um, uh, awareness of that. And depending on the patient, uh, one will be uh, kitted up in um, PPE, the personal protective equipment, uh, which can include kind of glasses, goggles, masks, uh, hospital scrubs, aprons, gloves, things like this. And we all get trained up in using these uh, safely um, and effectively um, and you sort of putting them on and disposing of them in certain ways and changing them. So it's, it's become very complex, but it is very, it's very effective in controlling the spread. Now, obviously, when you're talking to someone, uh, a patient, and if I'm talking to them and I'm all geared up, uh, you know, I kind of look like a spaceman with all this stuff on me. It's, it can be a little difficult to connect uh, with people the way we used to, but uh, kind of everyone understands it's necessary. So we've changed the rostering a little bit. So uh, we do what work we can from home, phoning people and, and Zoom and uh, or not Zoom, but various kinds of ways of connecting. Um, but we do need to go in from time to time and we have rosters to minimize the footfall in the actual hospitals and so minimize the risk to everybody. Right. OK. And 
So what brought you to write about coronavirus and the, the book, the new book, Coping with Coronavirus? Yes, yes. Uh, so the new book is Coping with Coronavirus. And it, um, you know, it, it occurred to me when it was fairly clear that uh, coronavirus was going to present a huge problem to the world or t two big problems, basically the illness caused by the infection itself and the uh, anxiety and the panic that it triggers and quite understandably triggers in pretty much everyone's mind. So um, it occurred to me, I, I had done some media pieces about this and a piece in the Irish Times, and it occurred to me that um, maybe an e a book would be useful, something that wasn't part of a sort of a news cycle that was a little bit set back from the... Uh, the cotton thrust of the daily media. So um, I contacted Marion Press, a publisher here in Dublin with whom I'd worked on a history of psychiatry and a biography uh, previously. And uh, they were very keen. I, I've never come across a publisher say yes so quickly and so completely to anything. And uh, we agreed time was of the essence. So we... Um, created this uh, ebook and I have to pay tribute Marion Press really sort of downed tools uh, on other things and focused on this uh, Patrick O'Donoghue and Connor Graham and various others there they just really got into it and we produced an ebook first off uh, because uh, bookshops are closed and uh, distributing um, you know paperbacks and hardbacks is challenging so we made an ebook which is available um from Amazon and Google Play and Apple and all, all these ebook distributors. Um, now we wanted to make it free, but that wasn't possible on these ebook platforms. So we put the minimum price of a euro on it and proceeds from it will go to the Irish Red Cross who are helping with the response to coronavirus in Ireland. And indeed the Red Cross internationally is doing a lot of work in it too. Fantastic. <clears throat> so I've read the book. I'd just like to say I thought it was a brilliant read as well. Really um, sort of practical, pragmatic information, really sort of easy to put into your routine, you know. And um, I've recommended it to all my clients and I'll continue to recommend it to anybody. Great, great stuff. Um, yeah, the book, it's it's pretty short, pretty focused, and uh, it draws on a lot of the anxiety management techniques and behaviours that uh, many people will be familiar with already. Um, I try and draw them together a little bit into the coronavirus context i guess and um uh yeah so so we sent the ebook off out there and it is chipping along um, and we're getting a lot of really interesting feedback so it's gone now to a paperback edition which is available again from amazon or marion press or whatever and a u.s edition which will be sl slightly different for the u.s market is coming out um just uh, just just this week. Just it'll be out in the next few days. That's to say, just before the end of April. All right, amazing. In the book, Brendan, it's broken down into a couple of different chapters, and I have knowing, thinking, feeling, and doing. Uh, was there any sort of uh, reasoning behind that for you personally, or is it is that sort of a, a psychological framework that you kind of put in here? Well, to be to be honest, I I, I just put down all the bits of advice I thought were useful from the uh, various, um, you know, psychological therapies like cognitive therapy. There's a, there's a lot of Buddhism in here too, and some of the Buddhist techniques. Um, and I just put it, put it all down on paper and I, I 
realized there was um, there were like categories here that some of it was about managing what we know and how we use information. Uh, some of it was related to how we think, very much like a cognitive therapy. And then um, feelings. We, I mean, we don't often talk about feelings and emotions. In, you know, psychological therapy is often very focused on thinking and thoughts, as if we were, are entirely logical creatures, and like we really, really aren't. So I have a section there on feelings and emotions, and then a d doing section, which is to do with them, um, you know, physical actions. And this gets back to my core message about mental health and physical health being very, very linked um, to, to the point where they're basically bits of the same thing. Um, so so that those categories just emerged from what seemed to me like useful advice. So that's how I divided the book. It makes it more navigable as well. You can look at, look at a bit and, um, you know, they're relatively short sections. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, that's it's funny. It's the second time you've mentioned the uh, the link of physical and mental health. And it's definitely something like I'm, I'm running CrossFit gym now probably 10 years and I'm I'm in the the fitness and martial arts world a long time a longer than that and it's definitely something that just keeps coming up more and more and it just keeps resonating with me the fact that you know they're, they're so intertwined and in some ways you have more access to emotion with people and the relationship that you've built up than maybe anyone else in their life might have you know it's, it's, it's definitely something I could see myself um, going after over the next few years you know I don't exactly know how but especially with the way the world has gone now and the way, you know, coming out of this and stuff, I think definitely it's something I'm going to have to pay more attention to and potentially integrate a little bit more. You know? Yeah, I think I think uh, an, uh, an awareness of that, you know, you, you cannot fail but to have an awareness of that when you're dealing with people either in terms of mental health or physical health. The connections are just, you know, so entirely clear. And um, sometimes, you know, with, with anxieties, which you might think of as a, a thinking problem a problem with your thoughts and your emotions sometimes it's not possible to think your way out of it um you know you need to set thinking aside for a little few minutes a little while and just do physical things and um somehow the situation improves you know problems with thinking and emotions aren't always solved by going straight at them and trying to solve them sometimes you need to step a bit to one side and do something physical that doesn't involve thinking and emotions you know, isn't central to, you know, so that allows you to switch off certain bits of your brain and focus on what you're doing physically. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Just kind of breaking the loop of whatever's going yeah. on, even just getting out for a yeah. walk or something yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, as we say, close the laptop, leave the phone behind and walk out the front door. Whatever happens beyond there is good. You know, you're out at least. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I suppose like from a physiological point of view, there's probably like with exercises and, and workouts and say intense strenuous workouts, there's probably some sort of chemical changes in the brain. Is there, obviously this is outside of my speciality, but yeah, we well, could maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, obviously there, are, I mean, obviously there are, um, there are huge changes in the brain in response to our physical activity and the brain, I mean, the brain is very poorly understood scientifically. That's the first big point. Our brain, you know, each brain consists of 86 billion nerve cells, okay? And there are billions of other little cells supporting those. And then there are thousands of chemicals floating around between these billions of cells. So, and each one of those 86 billion brain cells, nerve cells in the brain, has, about, has uh, between 
has approximately 10,000 connections to other brain cells. So the whole kit and caboodle up there in your brain um, has as much information in it as the entire internet, and it is more complex in its organization. So we don't really understand how it all works. Okay, we have a lot of new information, but we're still miles away from understanding how it works on a good day. And then if it's having a bad day, let's say someone is depressed or having severe psychological problems, then we really don't know um, what's going on there. So I suppose the first thing about what's going on in the brain when we exercise is that there's loads of stuff we don't know about the brain in scientific terms. So the best way to look at it uh, is mostly just look at its effects on you. Does something help you or make you feel better? Do things make more sense um, after you've done whatever activity it might be? Um, chemically, we do obviously we do know about cortisol, which is the uh, this stress hormone that gets released, um, you know, in situations of stress, um, which should end. So, um, you know, typically you're well, not so much typically. It's like a cartoon explanation, but you know, you're in the forest and a lion comes running at you. Then, of course, your cortisol surges because you need to do something quickly because you're afraid, and off you run. Um, and, and and that's very important. But what's equally important is that that cortisol response is switched off after the lion is gone, that you calm down, you get back to normal. The big problem with chronic stress that people have is they live at that hyped up state. Now, something like um, intense physical exercise uh, interrupts that cycle. If you're at that high state of arousal all the time, that high high cortisol, high stress state, then deliberately stressing your body uh, that little bit in exercise helps get the rhythm of turning on and turning off the cortisol back again. It, it takes back control of it. Uh, and that's incredibly important, um, you know, particularly for people who are stress or stressed or tense. And indeed, at a time like this with the, with the coronavirus, a lot of people are living at a, in a sort of a hyped up anxious state with very high cortisol and they need to interrupt that somehow. Physical activity is the best way of doing it, easily the best way of doing it. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's a feeling that I'm getting from some of my clients that I'm talking to or we're on the phone, we're doing check-ins and stuff. And it's for a lot of people, this is literally their lifeline where they'll, they'll hit it hard, they'll go for a good session and they'll just feel grounded again. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's ironic because the people need the, need the gyms more um, at a time like this than um, at a time not like this. Obviously, there's plenty people can do at home. And I know you're guiding people about that and you have lots of stuff there on the CrossFit website to support people. And I, I know that sales of um, exercise equipment have gone through the roof. Um, but but it is a bit ironic because for a lot of people, it's clicking into the uh, the gym and the community aspect of the gym that delivers that extra little bit of benefit as well. 100 mm. percent yeah it, the, the crossfit style of training is very much about community and a lot of our um classes and stuff i think that's one of the biggest value that people will get just that part of their day where they'll see those familiar 16 20 faces on the screen and we can have a little bit of a chat and a bit of fun yeah yeah and it's 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 really nice you can recreate quite a bit of that on the uh, i say on on the uh, computer on zoom or whatever um um and and that it, it's funny isn't it, it, it it's the, you know it's the same with meditating because, you know, meditation in theory is a very solitary activity and you can just do it at home uh, on your own. Um, but people do a whole lot better if they join a meditation class where they, they literally go somewhere, say hello to everyone at the start and then sit in silence 
you know, for an hour <laughs> and then yeah. say goodbye at the end and off you go. And you think, well, you know, I could have done that at home. And the answer to that is, well, you, you could have, but you wouldn't have done that at home. There is, <laughs> you know, there's that tiny little bit of peer pressure that, that comes on or that little bit of connection that sustains you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a um, just something from the book that I found really interesting that I think would be uh, quite beneficial for people now will be the, the whole idea of like a, a bit of a daily audit or a bit of a check-in for your emotional health. What, what, what does that look like? Well, you see, we have really very little understanding of our own emotional lives and what we feel and what we think. Um, and sometimes I think this is the sometimes I think this is the purpose of meditating. So let's say I decide I'm going to meditate. I sit down and I try and clear thoughts from my mind. The first thing that happens is I fail completely. And I and like you know, within seconds, my mind is packed full of thoughts. And this is where you can get a chance to do a little audit of your thoughts and emotions, because if you're trying to get rid of the things, then as they come flooding into your head, you'll notice them. And you'll notice a succession of really sort of pointless thoughts about things and you know emotions that have no basis. So, for example, if you're feeling irritated or annoyed, it's really useful to pause for a minute and say, right, I'm annoyed. Why am I annoyed? Why am I feeling irritation? And loads of the time, there's either no reason or a really tiny reason that gets amplified. So it might be someone cuts in in front of you in the traffic and you're annoyed but you know you you move on but when you get home you're still annoyed and you're you know you're short with someone or you're um difficult to be around so some of those feelings you know they have no basis or they're entirely disproportionate and becoming more aware of that is important and that's one of the big things uh, when you take time to to think about your thoughts and your emotions a little um and that's what i really mean by checking in and auditing them because an awful lot of our emotions are negative but without a basis mm. i think on on there was a bit of a mention then about kind of maybe potentially relating that to something in your day so if i'm feeling x y and z how much negative news did I consume today or how much social media did I have? Or maybe just trying to find something in your day yeah. that could potentially be exacerbating the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. I have to say particularly the media input um, because we, we our brains are drawn to, you know, the most outrageous, most unlikely conspiracy theories on social media, <laughs> like the most completely and utterly ridiculous things that you don't believe. You, your logical brain is clear from the word go you don't believe it. But even so, these things have an emotional impact. They, they do pack a punch. And while you might read something and then dismiss it, it's still recorded, if you like. It leaves an emotional imprint, and this can build up. If you're consuming an awful lot of this um, untrue, unhelpful, hysterical, and manipulative material, it, it does have an impact. And you can end up feeling you know, just vaguely irritated and unhappy with the whole day. Um, and you might know why, nothing bad happened. Um, but all the time you spend scrolling through um, ridiculous social media posts or, you know, finding the very worst case scenario, looking for the epidemiological model that gives the worst possible outcome for the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and even if you don't believe it, it affects you. It, it affects us. I mean, we take all this stuff in. So um, it is worth if you're feeling annoyed or irritated at the end of the day, just stopping for a minute and asking yourself, why? 
you know, why is this? Why today? Why not yesterday? Did anything actually change? Or is it just a lot of small things and a lot of uh, a lot of really crazy, unhelpful social media? Yeah. And I suppose then tagged along with that, then some days there might be nothing. Some days you might just have to be kind to yourself and say, okay, I'm going to write this one out, chalk it up. Tomorrow's going to be a better day. Let's, let's, let's get on with it. Yeah, I mean, and again, to go back to go back to Buddhism, Buddhism is very, very clear about the value of compassion and um, sort of being forgiving. And the person we're most harsh on is, of course, ourselves. We berate ourselves thousands of times a day for not achieving things that we were never going to achieve today anyway. And there does come a point in the day where you might need to say things like, look, today just didn't work out. <laughs> it just was one of those days where things didn't click. Everything was just wrong and things happened at the same time and and so on. But being compassionate towards yourself is very important. Instead of regarding your day as a series of failures, um, you need to recast that as you were successful for a period until you stopped being successful with each thing. So you might have aimed to, uh, I don't know, exercise for 30 minutes or 50 minutes or something, and you only get half of that done. Um, that's not a reason for disappointment at all. It's a reason to do the same tomorrow plus one more minute. Yeah, absolutely. The I think You almost touched on the loving kindness meditation that was in the book. I th I th I've I've seen that before, but I think at this point in time, I think it's really useful that tool. And uh, if you remind me again, isn't it? You start out with loving kindness for yourself, then others, then somebody you dislike. Would that yeah, be? I mean, this this is a common meditation practice, and it, it sounds kind of daft to begin with, because we often think that look, I feel love or kindness, or as Buddhism says, loving kindness towards some people, I just do, and towards other people, I don't, and as if that's the end of the story. But certainly Buddhism would teach that you can practice this as a skill, that you can get better at automatically feeling this kind of positivity towards people and that life is better if you do. So the meditation practice involves finding a relatively quiet spot and then spending a minute or two trying to feel loving kindness towards yourself, which is a complex enough task um, because most of us have a sort of embedded belief um, that we are, uh, that we could be doing more um, and we give out to ourselves all the time. Um, you know, even if it's not true, which, you know, it isn't often. Um, so loving kindness towards oneself. And then just for ease, you feel loving kindness towards someone that you um, uh, find it easy to feel loving kindness for a friend, family member or whatever. And the next step is you try to feel loving kindness towards someone that you do not feel any loving kindness towards at all. You pick the worst, most difficult, awkward person that you can think of who appears to frustrate everything you do for no apparent reason and so on. And you try to feel loving kindness for that person. And let's be honest, you will fail. You might manage a little bit, but you're not going to manage a lot. But it's important to try. And then you try and feel loving kindness for the whole, all sentient beings, the whole world, everyone. And the purpose of that is, I suppose, to give us a feeling of how big the world is and in a sense, how small we are within the world. I know we feel like we are the whole world nearly for ourselves, but it's a very, very big world. And uh, I reckon at the moment, particularly with the coronavirus affecting 
so many countries so differently um that's a really important part of the loving kindness exercise but it's it's based on the idea that feeling loving kindness towards people is really a skill that we can practice and if we get better at it both we and they will be better off as a result that's the thinking yeah absolutely and then like the amount of knock-on effects from just putting yourself in that headspace of positivity and love and you know they can just bleed over into everything can't they? they could have seemingly no no relation to that absolutely even the even the commitment to try doing this is such is such an enormous step as well and it as you say it spills over into uh all, all other kinds of aspects of your life and particularly your uh, emotional life and uh um, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting exercise, and I like it because first when I heard about it, I thought, well, that's impossible. You know, that just can't be done. And if there's one thing that attracts me, it's something that on the face of it can't be done. Impossible. <laughs> I, I say that's impossible. Number one, that's impossible. Number two, off we go. <laughs> we try and do it. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and I suppose then, like relevant to the time again, a lot of the emotions that we're experiencing could be seen as negative where it's a little bit emotional or sorry anxious stressed um fearful and stuff so then if you have a time of the day where you dedicate it to that kind of loving kindness there's definitely kind of an, an antidote almost isn't it to the current well it, it is and it's 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 like a like a refuge uh whereby uh you know you're going that's what you're going to do and that's what you're going to try and feel at that time in the day and that's really really that's really, really helpful emotionally because it's given yourself the message that, you know, you, you you do have some control over this. And this is another thing really important at the moment with coronavirus, which is, you know, the nature of this stress. It could be infinite. You could feel infinite anxiety about this because it's, you know, all over the world. And it's, you know, there are aspects of it we don't understand. So we could speculate forever. But showing ourselves that we have a degree of control over our responses, our emotional responses, over our anxiety, and indeed over our physical behavior. You know, uh, we, like we all know and we all believe that um, we can do things to slow down the spread of the virus. Um, and that's a very powerful message um, that a lot of people haven't really taken on board. They feel utterly powerless. And yet we can see that the steps we're taking are helping. Um, but we just that just doesn't seem to penetrate. So it's good to, to to focus on, you know, elements of this that we can control rather than focusing on the elements that we can't. Yeah, uh, you mentioned in the book as well. Uh, you touched on the WHO guidelines and, and kind of the simplicity of them, where it's like do this, this, and this, and then therefore you are doing everything in your power. I thought that was uh, that was quite powerful. Yeah, it, it, I mean. It is. I mean, the WHO and the government, the public health advice, they know what they're talking about. You know, um, there's been enough outbreaks of epidemics and pandemics and so forth. Um, and we need to take comfort in that advice. It, we, and the advice changes from time to time, and I'm sure it will again. And then we change our behavior with it. If we could really understand that the advice is based on the best available science, if we do it, we're helping ourselves and others. There's huge comfort in that, huge psychological support in being aware of that. And I have to say, the Irish government um, and the service have done very well in um, conveying this very steady, very reliable stance. Um, you, you can see it, um, the repetition of the same language every evening with the new statistics, the slow evolution of advice, the very measured, steady response and we should we should take some satisfaction and some refuge in that it is psychologically helpful to do that 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you can, <clears throat> there's always going to be a lot of critics, but definitely this um, conversation that we're having today could have been very different. Obviously, there's a lot of people that have had a very tragic time. They've lost people and stuff, but this particular situation that we're in right now could be a hell of a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, it could. And But you make a really good point there, which is people are having very, very different experiences at the moment. You have people who are ill and people who are families who are bereaved, as you put it. And then you have people who are just absolutely terrified. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of people over the age of 70 who are cocooned uh, or, you know, in their houses all the time. Um, and, you know, mightn't have seen uh, a city street or a road apart from what they see out the window for several weeks. And it's really important for those people to be reassured that by staying at home in that extreme way, like they're advised, they really are at the front line of controlling spread of this virus. Um, and they really need a vote of thanks. Other people you know, are staying within two kilometers of their house. And yet others, for example, me, I go into work from time to time when needed. So I do still have quite a connection with the outside world, but I feel very deeply for the people who are um, at home all the time and they, they want to do more that, you know, but, but, but we just need to reassure them that by staying at home, they're doing, you know, they're making a huge contribution to the population health. Absolutely. It's not, it's not an easy task. No, no, it certainly isn't. And and because we, and I, I go on about this bit in the book, we have something called commission bias in as humans. We want to do stuff. You know, we just want to be doing things, even if doing things uh, mightn't be helpful. And even if we don't really know what to do, still off we go and we do things. So people who are staying at home and self-isolating um, often want to do more. And we just need to keep reassuring them that by staying at home, they're doing the most important thing of all which is a real paradox but it's true yeah that's a that's a great message brendan i know i've got a lot of people here that will uh, that'll really resonate Good. with both uh, in that age group and people that will have their parents uh, yeah. and stuff, so great. Um, the la uh, one of the last things i wanted to touch on is obviously at the moment there's quite it's, it's going to be quite a challenging time mental health wise after this, as we start to kind of reintegrate into what, what will be a new normal or a stage kind of process, do you think we're going to see a little bit of an increased demand for mental health services or people kind of needing to maybe get a little bit more assistance in, in, in getting back to, yeah. say, quote-unquote normal? Yeah, we are. We are, for sure. Um, and people are going to need uh, an awful lot of support, uh, not least uh, you know, getting over their anxieties. So let's say there are restrictions uh, lifted, there, there's an easing, you're still going to have some people who will be reluctant to even, you know, take those few little extra steps um, because they're worried um, about the, uh, you know, wor wor worried about the virus, worried about they'll increase the spread of it or they might catch it or whatever. So even if certain things reopened, you'll find an awful lot of people reluctant to step out which is why it'll be very important for the government to continue giving the uh, feedback so we can gain confidence. So say if the restrictions are eased, we need to see statistics again very frequently to show that new cases or um, ICU admissions or, or deaths, um, you know, what are the statistics doing uh, basically? So that's going to continue to be very important and continue to be a big point of reassurance as things uh, reopen. 
Uh, with regard to people getting their lives back to normal, that will obviously have to be a step-by-step -step, um, approach. I think it will be important to take the do the new things that we will soon be allowed to do again. It is important to go ahead and do them and it is important to get things back up and running um, as best we can in our lives and to follow the advice that we're given about doing that. Not least because, um, you know, shutting down the economy has very negative effects on people's health as well. We have people who've lost their jobs, people who are struggling financially for other reasons as well. You have people who are struggling physically to get the activity they need. So, for example, someone who is self-isolated in an apartment with no balcony and no access to a garden, getting back into physical activity will be a challenge, even if they've been very active in the apartment. Um, you know, it's still limited um, in a sense. So, yeah, there's going to be a need for a lot of support, a lot of community, informal support, families, friends and so forth, encouraging people to step out of their homes um, and step away from some of the anxiety uh, and start start living the way we used to live um, to a point uh, after this uh, starts to ease. Yeah, absolutely. And then <clears throat> wherever possible, I suppose, the 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 strongest you can stay or, or the most awareness you can have in sort of all your practices now, including your fitness, your mental health, maybe some meditation and stuff, the, the stronger you can come out of this, um, the less likely it's going to be to kind of have issues going. going yeah, yeah abs absolutely. And one of certainly one of the things I advise very strongly at the moment is that people do have an activity even if it's in their home that they get completely absorbed in and because that's so good for mental health both now and when things start to ease and you come across this a great deal with people who do running or swimming where they say that they just get into the flow you know that that, that the rest of the world just vanishes and all there is is, is the movement of running or the the movement of swimming or something like that. And that's a very psychologically healthy state to be in where the rest of the world just vanishes. And I remember one, I was doing a talk about this once and I was recommending mindfulness as a way of achieving this. And this woman came up to me at the end and told me I, that I was wrong, that mindfulness was not the best way to achieve this state of absorption or state of flow. And she said, knitting was the way to go. Because when she, yeah. when she said when she does her knitting, um, the rest of the world disappears. There's only the movement of the needles. And she says it's better than all the other ways of achieving this because at the end you've got a lovely jumper or a scarf or something, as well as uh, yeah. a period of absorption in your activity. Yeah, absolutely. And whatever it is that brings that individual into a state of flow, they're, they're right about that topic. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's an it's an amazing thing to do. And it's, it's, it's so healthy and it will help with the kind of transition that we're coming up with, coming up against now as um, as very, very nervously. We 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 uh, relax the restrictions and see how it goes. No one knowing will we have to tighten them again a bit, let them go or focus them differently um, or what? Um so it's very important to have those periods of time when we're just doing um, something uh, that lets all that anxiety dissipate. Absolutely fantastic stuff, Brendan. Um, I'm going to wrap it up, but I would like to maybe just give you the opportunity to, um, if you'd like to summarize or anything, maybe just to wrap it up or give any final thoughts on the whole well, thing. Well, I suppose like the, the number one is probably that we need to be a whole lot more compassionate towards ourselves, uh, particularly now. I mean, this is a tough time and we're going to be anxious. We're going to find things difficult and we need to be easy on ourselves. If you try to follow a lot of the advice that uh, myself and others might be giving, um, good on you for trying. If it doesn't work out, don't worry in the slightest. Try again tomorrow. 
um, because we can manage this. We have more power over ourselves and over this than we think. Um, so I do, I go into all of this in the book um, and uh, I do hope it's helpful. Um, I should add before we finish, I guess, that um, you can, uh, I might have said at the start that any proceeds are going to the Irish Red Cross. Did I say that, Eamon? It's, they are. Anyway. I did. Yeah, that's great. Um, and it's it's only a euro and you can read it on your phone or, or wherever. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, again, Brendan, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy day to sit and chat with me. And uh, thank you again for everything that you're doing. No, well, well, look, well, look, thank you. Thank you, Eamon. I mean, um, things like gyms and physical activity are incredibly important. And I was looking through the website and uh, the various posts and that. And it, it, it's everyone doing their thing. You, you doing your thing, me doing my thing as best as we can in the circumstance and then rebuilding it. That, that's how we're going to get out of this. Absolutely. We're stronger than we, we think. Are. We are. Yeah. Thank you very much, Brendan. Have a fantastic Thanks a million. Day. Thanks, Eamon. Bye.